es que se presenta de tal forma y creo que hay una demostración clara de que nos encontramos ante ejemplares no humanos que no tienen relación con ninguna otra especie en nuestro mundo. Y que se abierta la I wish, I wish you could understand this sensation I'm having. Maybe if I described it to you, maybe it would feel familiar, this situation I'm in. My eyes are fixed, but not really open, kind of in a resting position, staring off into a very vast distance. Usually, when I accidentally phase out of the moment I'm in, my eyes glaze over and fix on a point somewhere in the middle distance, like just above your right ear if you're talking to me about strategies for passive income or when I'm waiting in line for the ATM or when I scroll past a holistic healer's profile who spells holistic wrong. Actually, to call what I'm doing staring is not quite right. My eyes are simply open and rather narrow, not quite a squint like two tiny mail slots on a miniature apartment complex. My partner Galinda took up miniature making during the pandemic. Now our entire loft is filled with smaller versions of the loft in all the places we've ever been. I accidentally put my foot through the Delta Terminal at Miniature LaGuardia. To be fair, it was closer to me than Miniature JFK, and more convenient. The dryness in the angular corners of my mouth suggests that it too is rather slottish, a slot that sits open, letting the hot stagnant air just sort of languish there, like a low fog in San Francisco. Goddess, I would kill for a glass of lemonade. The air is unnaturally still. I'm talking no breeze at all. I'm lying down, which is nice. I can hear someone speaking, though I can't locate my ears. They're talking near me, in Spanish about giant artworks drawn into the mountains and secrets in outer space. It's hard to keep focus, like I'm on day two of adjusting to progressive lenses. I can tell I'm in a box of some kind. The sounds are all echoey, and there's glass over me, and, oh, is this silk bedding, slippery but oh so luxurious, the kind you'd find in a... Oh, oh dear. Is this a coffin? A see-through coffin? Why am I so small? Did Galinda find my body in a ditch somewhere and recreate me in miniature? I can't move. I, I don't have any bones. In fact, I seem to be made of papier-mâché, and it's mixed with hay and concrete. Yet still I feel a pulsing in my chest, not a heartbeat, something else calling out. A deep need to find something, someone. The pulse becomes a beep, and the beep is getting louder. My molecules pull away from the dusty cement body. I fade once again into nothing. If you were to rocket out into space 20 miles and then look back, the receding Earth would look like this. Everyone says space has no sound. But I bet you still hear something. A grumble of a belch from a black hole, a little wee as a comet whizzes by. Now, maybe not with human ears, but maybe if I had little slits for ears like a tiny alien mummy and a long head that made sound waves bounce around in it, maybe then I could hear it. 
Everything makes a little noise. The sound of Galinda's mouth guard as she grinds it instead of her teeth. A late summer mosquito as it careens too close to one's ear. A mouse eating a candy cane stripped from its wrapper. My friends Diane and Doug Candle think my hearing might be too good, that I should have it checked out. I know that because I heard them whispering in the car as they sat in the driveway before coming in. I'm not sure why they say I require some sort of intervention just because I cringe and make a scene any time they rub their hands on their jeans or wear socks when walking on carpet, but it's unbearable. Some of us can hear things that others do not, and I imagine we all make sounds that others ignore or choose not to hear. Turns out our earth is like that. It's just floating and spinning and chasing the sun through the void. All the while, electrons are spinning out from its donut-shaped belts of radiation, the Van Allen belts. And now, once again, Dr. Earl S. Harrell. The Earth is ringed by two zones of high-energy particles. These areas are now called the Van Allen radiation belts in honor of the physicist whose work led to their discovery. And no one really knows what happens to the electrons, except that they kind of do. They merge with the plasma sphere and decay, lose their juice, have no gumption, and as these particles escape or collapse and corkscrew wiggle-waggles in every direction, they make noise. A lot of it. And of course, someone's found a way to translate the radio waves into sound so that we Earth-dwellers could hear it. And it sounds like something else. Like a cricket or a frog calling out into the universe for connection, for a mate, for a visit. But the only thing we've turned up is a cement and hay mummy lying in a homemade coffin and some rumors about a balloon in the desert and that Navy pilot footage of a tic-tac-shaped vessel making erratic turns across the night sky. But the earth keeps on singing with its whistling beeps sending waves forever outward like ripples in a lake. It's cool here beneath the surface. The water slides fast over my face and shoes, it slows as it collects in the wool fibers of my turtleneck. My hair, what's left of it, sways in the current, making the top of my head look like a rock covered in moss. I can feel my owl-shaped necklace clinking as it tumbles over the rust-colored stones above my shoulders. I can sense a big spring storm must have just come through. The water in the creek is high and clear and all the critters are emerging. The crayfish moves from one rock to another. A minnow darts past it and joins more of its kind just out of claw's reach. I'm tempted not to get up, not to break the surface, to just remain under here until... I know this place. Even without looking, I can picture the way the mud clings to itself as the water of the creek cuts through it. I'm at a bend in the water's path, the banks here a little higher than along the rest of the creek. Nearly three feet on one side, low and sloping toward the leaves and trees on the other. A few yards beyond the higher edge, past a creeping patch of clover and a few sprigs of poison ivy. 
sits a fallen log, rotting into the ground. Some logs are mysterious, like this one, just a torso in the grass. No branches, no roots, like the middle of a tree was just cut and left. Or maybe it just had enough of being a tree and thought, what if I was a log instead? What if I fully embraced my logness? What if that was what I was always meant to become? Destiny, or perhaps destined tree. What if it left the rest of it to keep growing and then it just lumbered over to a partially sunny spot and just waited? Waited for the vines to grow up around it, fastening themselves in the craggy holds of its mottled bark bleached gray in the sun, waiting as its exterior soaked up the rain and dew and melting frost, making it impossible to hold its once perfect shape. Waited as a piece of its protective bark just fell off in the breeze. It never used to do that. Waited as lacy patches of green lichen spread across its northern side and swirling stacks of turkey-tail mushrooms hugged its base. Did it wince when the tiny mouths of the bark beetles began their work? Holes where bugs got in also let in more rain, and it became chilled on the inside and out. At some point, this log was just waiting for it all to end. Through the water, the water that has been here and back many times, this water that has been snow, rain, clouds, lakes, steam, and oceans, inside and outside of all sorts of life, the water that now surrounds my being, I can feel the log as it dies. I can also feel it as it was a sapling, as a seed, as energy from the sun. I can feel the water in its cells. I can see the tree before this one and the one before that and the next tree that will grow here in the soil made rich by its decay. Creeks are magic, you see. This creek is also cold. It's April or March. It can't possibly be May. I can feel my socks, the ones I took forever to find, because I can't be bothered to pair them up after the dryer. I just toss them in the drawer and hope for the best. But there is no best. There is only a frustrating moment where I curse and cry out that I'm never going to wear socks again. I can feel my socks getting even wetter than wet. In some beyond wet place where the grooves of my wrinkling toes actually starts to sting a bit, having absorbed as much water as skin can before it begins to reject the very idea of being skin. I think about getting up and drying off, watching my fingers return to normal. And I remember the long walk between here and the house, up the hill, the house I grew up in, and the thought of the empty house that is no longer empty exactly makes me want to stay right where I am. I watch as a group of water skeeters moves across the surface of the creek. From here, they're like six-pointed constellations pulsing across the water that is my sky. I think about going up to the house. It's changed so much since I was small, as much a living thing as we were, are, were. Walking from the creek to the house means going through the muck and the brambles and the burrs that latch onto your shoelaces, past the cattails that break apart when you touch them, through the sheathed heads of dark purple skunk cabbage that smell rotten when they're fresh and even worse when they die. To get your shoes stuck among them is to learn the lesson that sometimes it's better to just lose a shoe 
even if it was your favorite type of sneaker, ruse, the kind with the pouch on the side where you could fit 35 cents, which was enough for milk money or exact change on the Garden State Parkway. I'm sure there's no reason that in a tangent about muck, decay, and things to avoid that New Jersey popped into my mind. No reason at all. It's dusk. Now, post-storm, the sunset is muddied hues of pink and chartreuse yellow. A bat flaps furiously in zigzag patterns through the yard around the Japanese maple. As soon as the rains went away, the peepers started. Even with the little whirlpools sloshing by my ear canals, I can hear them. Pseudacris crucifer, the eastern chorus frog. My mother always told me that they were the first sign of spring. She'd open the door and we'd stand on the little porch to get a better listen. The sound carried all the way up from the creek and out to the neighbor's yards for miles. The sound of eager male frogs hoping to attract a mate, puffing up little translucent throats and letting out a desperate high-pitched pulse for connection. I feel that now. It was working on me. Maybe I'd been in the creek too long. I wanted to hear them clearly again, like we used to, like Mom and I used to on evenings in mid-March, the time of year when she died, just as spring was coming. I want to hear them again, be surrounded by that sound instead of having the sound diminished by the rushing of the creek to hear them with the clarity of what used to be. So I get up. A year or more ago now, I step through something. A vortex, a portal. Time seemed to slow down around me, and I ended up here, in the clear, fast-running waters of the creek behind my childhood home, at the edge of what used to be a forest, which had been a farm, which is now a few big homes on two small lots of wooded land with angular yards and fading decks made of wood from the woods of somewhere else. I breathe in the damp spring air of this place and push the wet hairs back along the top of my head. Beads of creek water turn to droplets and run down the lenses of my glasses. Here again. Here still. Here always. And the peepers, those little frogs... So loud. As individuals, they're not big. Inch and a half, two inches at most, from the tip of their noses to their green-yellow groins. They blend into their environments, taking inspiration from the leaves and the mud. No wonder they have to be so vocal to be found, even by one another. Most have a streak of darker skin that runs from their eyes down their bumpy bodies, like a bandit's mask or the permanent path of a tear. These peepers are the descendants of those who were here when the creek took a different path, when it emerged from a seeping brook and began wearing away at the schist in the shale. Theirs is the sound heard by the Lenny Lenape and the Okahawking tribes, the creek dwellers and the river keepers. Theirs is the sound listened to by Welsh Quakers who built mills and stone barns and tried to conjure a new iteration of the life they'd left behind, a tributary broken off from its source. When John Boyers bought 211 acres for 900 pounds of gold and silver, the peepers entered a new era of more rapid change, where every few decades or so a new family moved in, farmers, innkeepers, tradesmen, and oystermen named Fortune Fullerton, who found no oysters in the creek, but surely found some use for the clean water running just behind his stone house. The land around the frogs grew closer, 
Divided, then divided again, woods cleared, trees planted, trails worn down by deer, then cattle, then tractors and paving machines. If the peepers paid any attention at all, but why would they? They'd know that now the neighbors around them have shifted again. Everyone from the last fifty years have died or moved away. The people I knew and waved to and mowed lawns for, whose daughters ate all our cinnamon red hots and talked on the phone to their boyfriends all night while they were supposed to be babysitting me, the Burnses, the Millers, the Kleins, the Rambos, Mrs. Wheeler, who lived across the street and had two basset hounds. They're all gone now. Not at once, but slowly. As it happens, one then the other. A widow, then a widower. And my parents, too. Once the youngest on the block to move in, they became the oldest. Then they were gone. Their house sat there empty. The peepers were still here, waiting for what's next. Heralding spring, a signal of something new, always a return to a season of possibility and growth. And for me, standing there, here, again, dripping, and unable to move from the spot I was in, I had work to do. And for a very long time, where I thought I might simply succumb to the weeds and the weevils, I felt the stirring for connection, a sense of reaching out, one not too different from the impulse of someone who would manufacture tiny Mexican aliens just to make friends, the way the earth keeps sending arcs of noisy electrons out into nothingness, pinging the darkness for others to find it, like a congregation of frogs after a thunderstorm. But to do that, I had to take a step out of the creek and get on with it, through the muck with its burrs, clumpy mud, its cattails, goldenrod, its ticks and its thorns, all the tiny dangers of the woods. Because if I could start to move again, I could escape this moment and get back to a place where all options are available, all pathways possible, a place to explore every dimension of our damp realities, a place we call the Deep Night. Oh, friends, hello. It's Dale Seaver, your host of Deep Night with Dale. And while we come to you, as we always do, from the foul banks of the Gowanus, I claim to be no guide or guru for you this season. I have been humbled by the world. And this old turtleneck-wearing fellow is once again in a place of searching, of reaching out, of connecting. Might as well change my last name to Seeker. It's fall now in Brooklyn. The autumnal equinox has transpired, and the harvest is upon us, a time to reflect and honor that which we have in abundance. And what I have in my abundance pouch is anxiety, a pile of expired COVID tests, and a very expensive bottle of olive oil that my cardiologist insisted I take a swig from every morning to fight off the bad cholesterols. I imagine quite a few of you will be 
jarring up your emotional jams and jellies to deal with at some later date, and that's okay, too. Put them up on a high shelf, one that requires a step stool to reach, and seal them nice and tight. They'll keep. Or if you're like my cousin Draynald, when the leaves start to change, you can carve a very large but not large enough pumpkin, put it on your head, and leave it there till at least Thanksgiving when the rest of the family begs then immediately regrets having him take it off. Today, as I speak to you, I find myself more untethered than usual, and maybe this is something you're feeling as well. Somehow, after three years of global pandemic, frantic SOS emails from the Noom app reminding me to log my frozen bow buns, and the tedious, emotionally draining work of dealing with the death of one's parents, I find myself unable to hold my shape for too long. When I close my eyes, no matter how many nighttime gummies I take, or maybe because of them, I keep blipping out of this existence and into others. I become hyper-focused on one aspect of my life or one task, rolling it over in my mind over and over and over and over and over, seeing life through all sorts of eyes and perspectives. And sometimes I wake up underwater or in the body of an inanimate sea dragon or trapped in a giant heart in Philadelphia. And if I have to experience those things, you should at least get to listen in. In part, I'm doing this show to record what happens to me to have proof of these encounters with my other, I guess, other selves, inner selves. It's been suggested that this is all some kind of grief response. A bizarro Elizabeth Kubler-Ross where the stages are anger, denial, acceptance, and breaking the space-time continuum. Might I consider this a quantum leap for anxiety-ridden mourners? What I wouldn't give to warp into a warm Scott bacula, especially during his Starship Enterprise years. Galinda reminded me, halfway through one of our naked goat grief counseling sessions, that's where you discuss loss with your partner while being emotionally and physically open amidst a herd of aging goats. The fact that they're so close to dying themselves really keeps the idea, and sometimes even the scent of death, present in the barn in a very visceral way. She reached over and gently reassured me that, yes, we could go for frozen custard after and that loss is a process. It's not linear or clean or easily gotten through like a to-do list. One can be distracted by the practical things that have to happen, like building miniature subway benches for the tiny citizens of Dominion, New York, <laughs> so they have a place to sit, or making sure your will is up to date. But at the end of the day, there is a vast universe of emotions and memories that trigger those emotions that will always be there. It's just how you access them. And those feelings are so big and complex that sometimes you won't be able to choose how they manifest. It'll just happen. You may get teary when a certain song comes on at Target while shopping for high school supplies for Teen Pepsi, or feel wistful when you catch the smell of damp concrete and timber from a construction site walking through a maze of scaffolding on the Lower East Side. Or the response may be so overwhelming that you feel as if you're being pulled into a different reality. I'll be honest, I kind of zoned out into that middle distance place after the part about going for frozen custard, but I think she probably made some good points. If only I could figure out the reason why it feels like I keep getting pulled into a different reality. Oh, I should tell you what happened. At least as I understand it to be. I probably should have led with this... My father died, then assuming that his wife, my stepmother, would live for a significant time longer, because why not? And because nothing was left directly to me in the will, I took no action as far as cleaning out their house or dealing with the belongings. But I wasn't really ready, and even if I were, there was no real mechanism for me to do so. And she was, let's say, reluctant to move forward in that way, and I wanted to honor that. But then almost exactly a year later, 
she died too. Same way, really, just keel over in the house. He died in the bathroom. She died watching an Eagles game. Not sure who was having a better time. They had to cut off the football jersey she was wearing to try and resuscitate her. It, it didn't work. And so, and so, that was its own very difficult and sad situation. Ours was not always an easy relationship, but over the last year since Dad's passing, we had grown close, as close as we probably ever could be. And through that process, I tell you, in her last year, something stirred in me, and the feeling was what I think most people would call grace. And I was looking forward to navigating our relationship going forward. The grace I felt was such a wonderful feeling, and it opened me up to the idea that with loss can also come an incredible lightness, higher notes mixed in with the low ones. We had just helped decorate her house for the winter solstice, carefully placing each of her 300 beloved solstice elves onto every available ledge and shelf. We plugged in the rotating tree of remembrance and looked forward to the annual exchange of gratitude cards and salmon nog. But shortly after arriving back in New York with the first shudder of frost melting above the Gowanus, we got a call that, there amongst her favorite things, sleeping in the chair as her team bested the New York Giants, her heart had given out. There's still a lot to talk about. How knowing grace changed me in that moment in the days since. How decisions get made, how families work and sometimes they don't. How my hair seemingly turned white overnight, the colony of the determined gray hairs on my chin spreading outward to meet the original settlers in my sideburns. And perhaps one night I'll explore the nuance of all that. But first, before anything, there was the stuff. Because from that point on, I now had a house, fully decorated for solstice times and filled with everything they owned, made, and thought about making. His stuff, her stuff, some of my stuff, some of my mother's stuff, all in all fifty years' worth of stuff. Oh, and the house itself. The process of clearing out one's childhood home is immense. It's unbearable in so many ways. No matter the size, no matter how well prepared you might be, I came to think of the house with its many additions built on by my father as its own sort of family member, one that I now had to care for. I have a curious relationship to the physical vessels that helped my parents. Upon their passing, and now including my stepmother, I simply got a call that they were dead, and then by the time I got to wherever they were, uh, their bodies were gone, taken away, processed, prepped for their journeys beyond. It's a very odd thing to hold to just have your parents vanish into nothing, as if they had blipped into some other reality themselves. I have to trust that they actually died, that someone saw their body without breath, without heartbeat, and that it was truly the end. I have to trust because all I have is a tearful drive to the last place they were, where I hope for a tiny echo of their essence, of their being, to still be palpable in the room where they expired, in panic or at peace I can never know. These people who brought me into the world with laughter and light and uncertainty and joy, who worried about me my whole life, anxious I'd make it home from a friend's house or college or from playing in the creek in the woods behind the house. My parents, who during bouts of cancer, the threat of contagions, I worried about them as they got frail and had to wear masks and get vaccines or had surgeries or clots and stents. I tried not to get worked up every time they ended up in the emergency room. 
These people with whom we are engaged in an extended, long game of constant exchange of worry. Those people are gone. And then you find yourself, if you're me, left weeping into a dresser lined with crystals, wondering what could have been done and wishing for more time. And also maybe crystals are just shiny rocks. I've stopped washing them and charging them. I put off dusting because it means moving so many rocks. Without a final moment with my parents' bodies, I viewed the work of tending to their house as a kind of gift and a solemn duty, easing the passage from its current life to a new one. I made the decision to sell the house, and repairs were made, rooms cleaned, items, so many items, donated with attempts to ensure careful placement of usable goods and materials, and yet still some things met their unfortunate fate of being carted off to the landfill. Seeing things you lived with, spent time with, tossed onto a brightly colored dump truck, causes tremendous ache in one's inner core. No junk-related puns painted on the side of that truck, no matter how clever, can ease the sting. It's raining today. Just as it rained every day, I was down at my parents' house in the early months of this process. In my way, I thought of it as my parents' own tears. Not only sadness, but an expression of solidarity from them to me, an emotional awareness from the spirit realm. I like to think of all of nature serving as a conduit for spirits. It was also a callback of sorts to a time fifty years prior, when my parents bought the house it rained for six straight days. There was so much moisture in the house with the rain and a roof that needed repairs that Dad set about scraping off all the old floral wallpaper. By the time the sun came out again, the job was nearly complete. I know that because he made a binder detailing all the repairs and changes he'd done on the house written in his distinctive tiny handwriting. When I read his writing, I can't help but hear his voice. It's there in the tiny swoops under the Y's and the perfectly closed E's. I assume everyone hears voices when they read, don't they? Do some people just see words? What is that like? When it's someone's handwriting, the voice is almost too loud. It's unmistakable in someone you know well. You can even hear their anxiety when the words get too cramped together or they have to continue the note on the other side of the card. When I was very young, two or so, my father chose to go to Saudi Arabia for a better-paying construction job temporarily. Years later, I found out that the decision filled him with dread. He worried that I would forget him, that I would not recognize him when he came back, and that he was doing some kind of harm to me. I suppose it didn't help that I clung to the pocket of his T-shirt at the airport back when you could do such things at the gate right before it boarded. While he was there, every day he wrote us letters. For me, he'd also send stickers that were included in Crazy Cow cereal boxes. These trading card-sized decals always had the cereal's namesake Cartoon Cow doing all sorts of, I suppose, crazy things, getting stuck in a basketball hoop, putting his hoof into a paint bucket, all sorts of trouble. Kids of America, your best friend's a cow. Crazy cow. <laughs> the nutritious cereal that makes chocolate-flavored milk. It's part of this complete breakfast. Just pour on milk, stir, and the milk starts to turn chocolatey. My father's whole life, he never stopped collecting those things from cereal boxes. I can't tell you how many Honey Nut Cheerio cars or little things I found stuffed in the back of his desk or dresser. Always ready, I guess, to send as a gift or hold on to as a collectible. It was a quirk of his, to be sure. 
I'd know the letter was from Dad because it came in a white envelope with airmail stamps and the blue and red angular blocks across the top fold. He'd write to Mom knowing that she'd read it with me, or he'd write me my own letter, which my mom would help me read. So at this very early, critical stage of discovering language, his was the voice I got to know. His small, tight letters in ballpoint blue. The words curled up the sides or contained arcing arrows of apology if he smudged the ink. Little drawings of stick figures in the margins helped convey something he'd forgotten when he first wrote it. His penmanship, a reflection of his inner self, tightly wound, expressive, funny. He was there in that remote place, sending out all these wiggles, hoping to maintain connection. I suppose not unlike the electrons in space or the papers in the creek. Connections. Making connections. Sometimes the letters would also have postcards or photos included, him on a camel or posed near the work site. Far from losing any connection to me, he had established a very direct, core, and solid one. One that was true to who he was to me and with me. And when I think of him, it's the same voice. The one I learned through those letters. The voice I heard then as I learned to read, learned to know him. I wish I had been able to convey that to him. Ah, but this binder, also a form of reaching through space and time to connect, it was prepared with the intention to be used after he'd gone, or at least once the house had sold, but I doubt that would have ever happened before the other. He kept this guidebook from the afterlife in his desk along with the papers dealing what kind of maintenance needed, doing a ledger with every antique he ever purchased, logged with price and place of origin, and folders full of other inventories and receipts, and somehow I knew right where to find them. I was fluent. The first few nights you spend in your parents' house once they're dead, well, it's a spooky feeling. And yet the house this silent member of your family, this thing that knows your secrets, your hiding places, your invisible victories, your tearful collapses. The structure of stone and wood is also intimately familiar to you. You know its various warps and bends, its smells, its places that feel haunted, and the places that bring in the fresh air. You know all the patterns in the grains of the wood floors, the ones that look like a spider stretching its legs up and out, the one that looked like a robot wearing a hat. You know the circular hole in the floor in your room where you drop tiny things of no importance, a penny, a scrap of paper, a plastic bird whistle whose whistle no longer whistled. You're not surprised when the basement door opens on its own just a quirk of air pressure, or when the headlights from the cars going by spread shadows across your ceiling, you can trace all the indentations you left on the soft pine windowsill when you used to push your teeth into it while absent-mindedly staring out at the moon, making a mark, not realizing it would be there forever. And now, as an adult, you try not to think too hard about ghosts or secrets, and you don't spend a lot of time in the rooms where they died. The truth is, you don't get a lot of sleep in those early days. Or as it would turn out any day for the past nine months. Too much to do, too much to think through. Papa Gummy disappear into the void. In those early days, when everything they had is in exactly the last place they used it, you make small moves. Tiny gestures to start cleaning things up. Larger choices come later. I moved the furniture back to the way it was when I was a kid. I did that, and then I cried. Just sat in the middle of the room and let the immensity of the loss overtake me. 
Seeing the chairs back in their original positions, I remember all the times with one or both of them sitting there, with me down on the rug wrapped in a blanket made by my grandmother. Weekends spent in that same living room turning the volume up on the TV to be able to hear Buck Rogers above the sound of Dad mowing the lawn outside. The way our ironing board groaned and squeaked as Mom in her bathrobe pushed the iron over our clothes that were dried on the line outside. She hated ironing, and you could hear it in every push. The house evolved many times throughout the years that my parents lived there. The kitchen became the laundry room, the side yard with the mulberry tree and the garden shed that sat right next to it. The one Dad tacked up little wooden steps that I could climb up to the roof and use it as a makeshift treehouse. That yard that once held my sandbox where Dad saved me from a curious daytime raccoon. All changed. The shed and patio replaced with a screened-in porch and a new room for the piano. The hill where I'd run down to the creek or sled in winter months, was dug out for the garage when I was a teen. The wild blackberry bushes by the stone wall were cut down for the fence my dad built to hide the uglier fence the new neighbor put in. The house I was born into, the house where my dreaming began, is not the same house that I now owned, the one that I kept returning to and not wanting to deal with, staying in the creek. The place I inherited was deeply, achingly familiar, but also a bit foreign to me, unlived in by me as an adult. I was away for so long, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen different apartments from college till now, and it, the house, had grown up without me, hosting other dinners, having others laugh inside it. So before I could really take care of the place, I had to spend time mourning what the house used to be and acknowledging that we'd become different while apart a mutual acceptance between man and beams. Some had suggested that Galinda and I should move in. A free house, a great area, a fresh start. But we're both too old and need to dream in different places. And from the day I left home, I never thought about returning. This was a house that was my father's. Built and cared for and reimagined by him, it represents the full and beautiful expression of his vision and talent. And I thank him for giving me such a place to grow up in. It's just not the place for me to grow old in. Plus, as I've been trying to work out in twice-weekly cold-plunge scream therapy sessions, wherein my therapist is submerged in a metal basin filled with ice water and I scream at him through Zoom when it's time to come up, which honestly is kind of stressful, but it's a nice distraction from talking about feelings. While he's under, I say out loud to myself all the ways in which I fear letting my father down on a daily basis. By speaking them and naming them, I try to rob them of their power. But usually I don't get too far before the screaming part is required. But living in my dad's house would mean thinking about all the ways I'm letting him down times a million. If I had to take care of the house and make changes, oh my goddess, no. I'm hyperventilating at the thought. My task as I tended to this site and aided in its journey into its next life was simply to not let him down by letting entropy win. I was to protect the house to the best of my abilities and to be its vigilant eye, watching for any kind of break or breach, be it from above or below. Let no ant, mouse, or vermin find entry through its walls. Let heavy snow, hail, or torrential downpour be not cause for worry, and may all liquids be diverted to its ample gutters. And I stepped forward into that task, and I did as I set out to. The house was cleared, cared for, and sold, I still hate that I had to throw so very much away. Much of it we must never speak of for fear of angering literally generations of ghosts. 
But I also have what every 50-ish almost man dreams of, a storage unit full of memories located in my childhood hometown that I have no intention of ever visiting and that I pay handsomely for each month. In the note that I gave to the new owners, I urged them to go out onto the front steps and look up at the night sky in autumn, to watch the trees come alive with fireflies each summer, and to listen for the peepers in the creek when spring comes. A new chapter begins, as it usually does. If you're going through it, grief or loss or the sadness of getting a price increase on the latest bill from your storage unit, I hope as I have seen as possible, and now know profoundly, that there is indeed lightness in the darkness. There's a joy there, too. Let's linger in that place for a while, until we're unable to hold that shape any longer and get pulled away, or have to spend time with other memories, figuring them out, turning them over in our minds. In every reality, I'm going to be looking for grace, whatever place I blip into next. I can feel things breaking apart for me, Again, dissolving like so many electrons escaping the Van Allen belt. Thank you for tuning into this frequency and allowing me to ride the pod waves with you in your existence. Till next time, remember that although this night is ending, a bright new day is just ahead. Deep Night with Dale is independently produced, performed, and written by James Bewley. Podcast theme by Via Mardot. Season artwork by Victor Bizar Gomez. Photography this season by Emma Mead. New website design by Maria Belen of Bella Mona Designs. All of these artists are wonderful and worth looking up and following on social media or hiring for your next great thing. For everything Dale and Deep Night, true denizens of the deep should visit deepnightshow.com or tune into the show on Spotify or wherever fine podcasts can be found. Remember to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and follow Dale on Instagram at Dale Seaver. Thanks for paying a visit to the Deep Night. <laughs>